it's not uncommon for me to have calls at nine o'clock at night on the weekends with brands, you know, troubleshooting, um, or maybe it wasn't possible to schedule during the week, but something came up and was important to them. Welcome to the Food Startups Podcast. You just need the packaging to shout off the shelf. It's a different world when you actually think about adding value. But to be able to play now is definitely going to require some new thinking out there. Hang out with us and learn how to grow your food business. All right. Today we have Jordan Gaspar on the show. Jordan, how's it going? Hi, happy to be here. And where are you? I'm in New York. In New York. Cool. And I'm going to read your bio here. So... Jordan is a lawyer. She graduated from Fordham Law School, worked in the legal space for a long time, and she spent a lot of time at Morrison Cohen LLP conducting due diligence on behalf of funds seeking to acquire companies between $1 and $100 million in revenue, identifying business issues prior to acquisitions. Obviously, that relates in to her current venture, which we'll talk about in a bit. She is a food enthusiast at heart. She left her legal career behind to found and run a New York City-based catering company, Flatiron Kitchen. She also spent several years serving as a managing director of Golden Seeds, a national angel network that invests in women-run companies, acting as a member of the consumer sector group. Today, she is managing partner of Excel Foods, where she is a member of the investment committee and is responsible for supervising strategy on legal and investor relations for their entrepreneurs. She also oversees the daily operations of the company. Excel Foods is an investment fund fueling innovation in the food and beverage industry with access, community, expertise, and infrastructure. They work with founders to bridge the gap between innovative thinking and resources needed to scale to the highest levels of growth. They've invested in brands some that have been on the show, like Four Sigmatic and I Heart Quinoa. So Jordan, I mean, uh, quite a career already. Going back to your legal career, what I thought was interesting, why did you decide to leave law behind and start the catering company? So it was back in 2008 during the credit crisis. And the legal industry had changed a lot. There was a bloodlet of lawyers and a lot of people were losing their jobs. And I was uh, on path, is what we call it, at a firm, um, you know, and very much sort of protected through that process. And I realized that it really wasn't my long-term dream. And so for me, you know, I found myself kind of personally faced with the dilemma of people were losing their jobs. People were really in, in the state of chaos in the industry that I was working in, but I personally wasn't intending to stay. And I just felt like it was one of those life moments where it was time to take a chance. So I like to joke, I was the only person who quit their job during the recession. Um, but I did, I did feel like I, I have never looked back and it was the right time for me. Got it. And, and why catering? So um, I, wish I, I wish I could say it was well thought out at the time because it really wasn't. My best friend and oldest friend had just graduated from the Cordon Bleu and she was looking for someone to run her business because she wanted to launch a catering company. So um, I took the leap and I was excited. I wanted to work in the food space is what I kind of called it at the time. And it didn't take me very long to realize that it wasn't uh, a scalable part of the industry. So, you know, it gave me some great operational expertise. Definitely was rolling up our sleeve, my sleeves, you know, doing all of the 
not just sort of legal background work for the company, but also managing the finances and managing the kitchen and, you know, the vendor agreements and things like that. And, you know, gave me a lot of operational experience and, you know, running a small business. Um, we quickly grew to service clients like Levi's and Ogilvy and other big corporates. Um, but it wasn't, you know, sort of quite going to be what I had, had hoped in terms of on the scale side. And so, you know, through that process, I discovered a lot of great companies that had launched packaged food products. And, and I got interested in that area of the food industry. I love it. So, so I just learned something. So running the kitchen and, and sourcing suppliers, not only do you have the, the legal background, which I, I'm sure you use all the time in Excel Foods, and, and um, you've, we'll talk about this in a second, about due diligence on companies that want to get acquired, but you've also ran a food business. I've talked to a number of, uh, we'll say, funds that invest in food companies, and very few, if any, that I can remember actually ran their own food companies. So you have a very unique perspective. I, you know, thank you. And, and, I, and I think it did guide early on our approach because you know, I had actually set up payroll for the first time and was managing you know, 1099 contractors and, and also the Department of Health license. And you know, we ran our own kitchen. So you know, it was setting up our forms and our, the business development work and client management, um, procuring the raw materials, all the things that kind of went into it. But it was also setting up our insurance, you know, being mindful of workers' comp obligations. You know, all of it kind of comes down to sort of all those day-to-day executional challenges and opportunities that operators face. And I think that I had just come out of the trenches of doing that for a small company. I love it. I love it. And so the other thing that I mentioned back in, in the legal space, you know, for non, we'll say non experts in, in finance and, and law, the due diligence on behalf of funds seeking to acquire companies between one and a hundred million dollars. What does that mean? Um, sorry, please clarify. Sure. So, you know, in your bio, you mentioned that you were conducting due diligence on behalf of funds seeking to acquire companies between one and hundred million dollars in revenue. So what is due diligence? Ah, understood. So when a fund is engaged in a transaction to either invest money or buy a company, depending on the strategy of the private equity fund, they do diligence. Diligence is done both on the finance side as well as on the legal side. Um, on the finance side, it can be everything going through sort of the monthly cash balances, you know, going through the tax returns. It's going through sort of confirmations on the purchase orders and the retail relationships. But on the legal side, you actually go through and get under the hood of the company start to finish on everything from the legal records related to the entity. So if you have an LLC or a C-Corp, you'll have different documentation of that. Also to the material agreements, which are the agreements that drive the business. In a food business, it could be your co-packer agreement or major supplier agreements. Um, going through your uh, intellectual property, you know, what are your trademarks? You, do you have any patents? Thinking through, have you had any litigation? You know, what are your employment documents? It really runs the gamut, but it's all of those records um, that have been put in place that you know, sort of document the business in its current state. Gotcha. And as a follow-up, was there ever a time where maybe you were assigned to investigate a company where everyone thought that this is a home run and should definitely be acquired, but you discovered something just going through all these documents that was kind of a, a huge red flag that you had to, to halt the process? Yep. Uh, unfortunately, that happened a couple times. My most unfortunate memory of it was when we had been full throttle on a transaction early on when I started practicing. And 
I had billed like something like 200 hours in three weeks. It was some crazy amount of time. And we got to the day before the deal was supposed to close and we couldn't resolve a capitalization issue. And so there was a, through the diligence process, we discovered that there was a, a claim of ownership that hadn't been documented to you know, sort of the to, to the entity. And so basically what that means in English is that somebody potentially owned a piece of the company that wasn't part of the process. Gotcha, gotcha. So moving on to to Excel Foods, a couple questions in terms of the process of finding and, and investing in these companies. How long does this conversation, meaning you meeting the founder and then finalizing investment usually take? In every company, it's different. Um, we have companies that we've spent a year and a half getting to know, maybe the company came to us in concept stage and we sort of got to know the founder through the development of the initial packaging and, you know, sort of the first production runs. And then we have companies that we invested in within two weeks, you know, and, and they were ready to hit the ground running and the transaction moved quickly. So they're not all the same. It's, it's sort of like a make your own adventure. Gotcha. Okay. So just a, a varied state. And then I would think there's probably some too, where you meet them and you just have casual conversations, not even about investments, just build the relationship. Then all of a sudden they're in need for investment. And it's great because you've already have a, a, a background there. It definitely happens that way. You know, for us, it also, we could have co-investors that we are excited to work with or work with actively that, you know, will let us know that something's coming up and, you know, they think that it would be great for us to come in. It's, it really runs the gamut. So it could be a partnership that's driven by the founders and the relationship that's developed there, but it also could be um, built through, you know, what is the family behind the brand, the investors, you know, sort of wanting to bring in uh, a friendly co-investor. Gotcha. And in terms of the, the companies that you invest in, what are their, on average, I know there's a range here, uh, their, their annual revenues? Um, when you make an investment. So we like to say the companies are typically product ready. So, you know, they, they are ready to hit the ground running, which would be pre-revenue up to around 10 million in revenue. The idea is, is that we are investing in early stage and emerging growth brands. Our check size you know, ranges from around 250,000 up to 3 million direct. Um, but then we do have co-investors that come in alongside of us. And we've actually just completed sort of our second financing with a company that hit the $10 million point in terms of the round size. Gotcha. And and what percentage of companies that reach out to you looking for investment do you invest in? I wish I could say it was more. Um, we definitely do have a high bar. And so that's, you know, that is part of the models. We have the opportunity to speak to a lot of wonderful companies. To give context, we've spoken to, you know, over 2,500 companies in the past couple of years. So, you know, if you distill that down to the 30 that we've invested in, oh, wow. okay. um, you know, it's, it's, it's a pretty uh, wide group of companies that we get to speak with. Gotcha. Okay. Well, that's good. Let, let's, um, let's focus on the, we'll say the 99%, right? The, the companies that you spoke to that for whatever reason, you decide not to invest in. And let's just say companies that are looking for, for investment in the short term, and maybe they want to talk to Excel Foods. What are some themes you've seen in the companies that you've decided not to invest in? So for us, it's really a decision that's made first and foremost on people first, right? I and mean, it's, it's, do we like the team? Do we have confidence in them? Do we think we'll work well with them? Um, do, 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 is this a, a group of people that we feel like, you know, we should be partnering with? And I, so, you know, sort of starting there and saying the most important thing in any startup is the jockey, right? They say it's the jockey or the horse. And, and we have a really strong philosophy that we back jockeys. You know, we're investing in management teams 
and in you know executive teams brought in by management, we are only minority investors. So for us, it's really a priority to make sure that we believe that the founders are resilient, relentless, and resourceful, and that they're really going to be able to drive the engine of the business. Gotcha. And okay, so the, the jockey, not the horse. Now, being a minority investor, does, th- does that mean that you're not Okay, I don't want to say not active, but but the final decision, is that always with the founder when they're making business decisions? Um, I think that every company sort of has a different set of decision-making protocol and practices. Um, I think that you know what we pride ourselves in is that we have a really collaborative approach with our founders. Um, so it's pretty rare that you know, we're not um, working hand in hand together, thinking through strategic initiatives. You know, we are active in some companies, less active in others. It really just depends on the amount of capital we've invested and the partnership that evolves. Obviously, the companies that um, we've, you know, sort of committed significant, you know, capital from the fund, we tend to get, you know, even more involved. But, you know, our hope is, is that all of our companies are companies that will want to eventually invest more and more money in over time. Um, our model is not to make a single investment and to let it ride, but we do invest a smaller amount with the intention to invest, um, you know, sort of follow-ons of larger size. So we have some companies we've invested in up to five times, um, which has been great to kind of see that evolution. Gotcha. And and so in terms of the you know the nitty gritty of the founder relationships, some of the people that uh, the founders can they can they call you out of the blue when they when they have a problem? They can and they do, and and I you know I personally really welcome that. You know I think it's when we're investing in companies of this size, you have to make yourself available. And, and these entrepreneurs have everything on the line. You know, they have their total net worth, all of their relationships, you know, their heart and their soul is in these businesses. And so for us, you know, that does involve a much more hands-on approach. It's not uncommon for me to have calls at nine o'clock at night on the weekends with brands, you know, troubleshooting, um, or maybe it wasn't possible to schedule during the week, but something came up and was important to them. Gotcha. And Jordan, so as you know, any type of investing and you know, funds that invest in, in companies um, or even buying on the stock market, there's there's no guarantees, right? There's there's so many things that can happen. Can you tell us about a time where you've invested in a company and it didn't work out as quickly or work out at all? So I think that there is an element of you know, what you can and what you can't control in investing in early stage companies. And Everybody can control their efforts and their execution, but what we can control are life events. And early on in you know our investing you know, sort of experience, we made an investment in a great management team who certainly had a, a big opportunity, but then they had a death in the family. And as a result of that, they decided to reposition the business to be family run and you know, go down a slower path because they just felt like they had a lot on their plate to manage and that there was a lot of you know other constraints on their time um, you know, that they had to sort of focus on. And so you know we realized that no matter how much time and effort and money goes into things, you can't control things like that. You know, when there's unexpected events, you know, just this past couple of days, we found out that one of our teams had, a, you know, one of our, our teams had a, a team member who was in a near fatal accident. Right. And so all of a sudden, you know, a big part of the plan, you know, shifts and and these are people that, you know, we all develop relationships with that we care about. So there's sort of the human side of it where you you feel personally connected and and sort of that loss. But then there's also the side on the professional perspective where these are small teams with very limited resources. So if something happens to a critical team member, how is it going to be managed? You know, it's not like these are 400 person organizations. Right. Right. Gotcha. 
like you're saying, like the larger corporations that publicly trade, et cetera, et cetera, they can, they can find new CEOs a lot easier than, than a lot of these startups, right? Where a lot of times the CEO is kind of embedded into the, the whole culture of, of, of the company and the brand. Not just the CEOs, also the senior hires. So, you know, it, it could even be a senior hire that, you know, was critical to the team. So, um, it, it, there's a, just a, a delicate balance of, you know, sort of small teams and the dynamics and, any, anything can kind of shift that, you know, and it's not necessarily always under your control. Gotcha. And, and when you, uh, let's see, so out of, we'll say roughly 30 companies that Excel Foods has invested in, are there any founders that you can recall off the top of your head where you spoke to them in, in the first minute, uh, you're like, wow, I'm probably going to invest in this company? There definitely are those minutes, those moments. And, you know, the big joke is I swipe left or right um, pretty quickly. And you sort of know, like, who is your who's your, your style. And I mean, it's kind of like making friends or in anything else, you, you sort of know who you connect with and who you feel like there's chemistry with. You mentioned Tarot, like certainly we, we've always felt very strongly that, that that was a company that we wanted to partner with, but you know, that we really believed in the team. Um, and that was, you know, a, a pretty quick decision on our part. Gotcha. And since Force and Max been on the show, any other brands um, that you can think of as well? Um, I, a lot of them, you know, I, I mean, I would say that the whole point of, of us choosing the partners that we have is that we, we felt that click, you know, and, and I think that that's a big part of our model is that, you know, for us, we are giving our time and, and we want to feel that connection with, you know, all the founders in, in the initial stage and, and hopefully beyond. Gotcha. And the, the first contact you have, is it usually a phone call or in person? Um, Often the first contact is actually through some sort of digital communication, and then we set up a call pretty quickly. Um, so we'll have inbound, you know, sort of inquiries or connection made through our our relationships in the industry, um, and then we'll quickly jump on a call, you know, and get to to know the founder if it seems like it's the right time or the right fit for us to sort of pursue it. Gotcha. And so Jordan, I'm just I'm thinking of, of our audience here and. For those that are just getting ready to to launch a product, from your perspective, what are the things that they should consider if they're trying to grow into a, uh, we'll say like a seven or eight figure company in the first few years of launch? So the most important thing is that you have to know your numbers and you actually have to build out a financial model. Regardless of how well developed it is, you have to begin with that infrastructure on day one to make sure the unit economics work. And I think that a lot of founders are excited to produce a product, but they're not necessarily thinking about, is it a scalable product to manufacture? So building out sort of basic finance infrastructure is really important. The second thing is, is also to make sure in that process that you're protecting your intellectual property in production. And I think that we, we often see a lot of founders who are, who are so desperate to sort of find a co-packer that they don't go into the relationship protecting their formulas. Um, and so they'll sort of just hand their biggest asset over, which is the formula to the co-packer, and then try and figure out later how they can sort of retract that moment to own the IP. But the formula has already been given over to the co-packer. So you really want to be going into every sort of initial stage of your business, protecting yourself for the long term and not just getting through that week. Gotcha. Okay. So two follow-up questions here. One, for those that are not very financially versed, um, you mentioned, you know, a basic financial model. Where, sh- where could they learn about how to do that? Um, so I think that 
there are, you know, a, a lot of educational resources in terms of some you know, basic accounting classes and things like that. I think that what we find is in the founding teams we invest in, there's usually one of the two has some sort of background um, that makes them a little bit more comfortable on that side. But I don't even think it's, it's, it's not necessarily about, you know, sort of being a CPA. I think it's about actually taking the time to, to build out sort of like, what is the COGS analysis? You know, you know, what are your cost of goods? You know, how will your production run impact your cash? And I, and I think that that is something that you're just going to customize to your business anyway. I think beyond kind of expertise, you know, being brought in on day one and having good accountants and good advisors and, you know, maybe even a couple of interns with MBAs, <laughs> which can be helpful. Um, I think it's also just more from my perspective, sitting down and doing that analysis um, and building out the framework. Gotcha. And so that's interesting. So, I mean, I just think Google searches, right? You know, the cost of goods sold analysis. And then I've heard this from a lot of finance experts. Cash flow is is king. Yeah, cash flow. And then, and then just price and model, just scaling, right? If you're working with a co-packer, what is our price going to be if we buy 100,000 units? Um, those types of things are a good place to start. I'd say. Um, and and, and then, how much cash are you going to tie up in inventory? Gotcha. I'm a, that you haven't sold yet. And with the co-packer and protecting their formulas, I mean, no surprise, you're you're an expert on the you know, protection and the legal stuff. So, just just a hypothetical example. Let's just say I have um, a formula that's for let's say an innovative protein bar, and I want to go to a co-packer. What type of document do I do I get them to sign to legally protect my intellectual property? You start by signing an NDA. Um, and within that, you properly allocate that the formula that you're going to deliver is yours. Gotcha. So you start with NDA, but I mean, how enforceable uh, is an NDA if if something is uh, if a contract is breached? Um, I think that there are varying perspectives on enforceability. I think that it sets a tone that you are uh, protecting your business. The truth of the matter is, it depends on you know also not just enforceability, but the resources and whether or not you actually would go after the co-packer. I think that even if enforceability was, was sort of assumed, I think that there's also the perspective of do you have the means to sue the co-packer if they breach the agreement? I do think that it is an important step regardless. Um, if your co-packer can take your formula and manufacture it, not just for you, but for your competitors, I think that you you lose you know, a proprietary component of the business. And you know, with, with that loss comes that you're going to be supporting your co- your competitor launches, but you also will lose sort of some attractiveness and desirability to future investors. Gotcha. And and so, you know, my two cents here, Jordan, and feel free to, to disagree or add to it. You know, first off, I think that with lawsuits, if the company doesn't have that much money or et cetera, et cetera, it's going to be long. You know, I don't think lawsuits is it's never the number one choice, right? Getting to, so I think about just people uh, first and just trying to do your due diligence on people. And, and then two, I think what you mentioned about the NDA is, is really it's really cogent in the sense that just just kind of setting the expectation with them and your type of intent goes a long way. I think that it sets a tone of professionalism. And I think that that definitely will, um, it, it will command respect from people around you. You know, we definitely um, have the highest respect for people who are protecting their business and who are thinking critically and thoughtfully about who they interface with and how. So from my perspective, um, there's, you shouldn't be concerned about asking those questions. Some co-packers or investors, you know, won't sign them, but, you know, asking to asking people to, to sort of help you protect yourself is never gotcha, a bad gotcha. thing. To do. Um, and to finish up here, Jordan, 
with Excel Foods, right? You 30 investments in, in, in companies. When you look at a brand, you make an investment. How do you measure success? We invest in X company and they get to, to Y revenue or what exactly does that look like for you? So um, one of the things we spoke about is that we invest in the people. Um, we also want to be investing in companies that we feel like there's a big market opportunity and that there's a path to grow to 100 million sales and beyond. Um, we in particular really strongly prioritize disruption you know, we focus a lot on not investing in Me Too products. Um, we feel like it's it's hard to make them feel special, and it's easier to make something unique feel a little bit more mainstream. You know, if you look at Four Sigmatic and the success they've had, um, they've had a huge evolution in their offerings. And I think that you know, you take something like like um, what was a, a mushroom hot beverage brand, and you create an offering in coffee. Right, that's a more approachable format um, for sort of more of an everyday consumer. I think that we do like those types of companies. We've invested in everything from, you know, crickets to mung beans to mushrooms. Um, so for us, we're not really scared of some of those consumer education plays. We definitely we have increasingly in the past, I'd say, eighteen months, been looking to invest in and partnering with founders who've got digital strategies who are at the very least, you know, one. One strategy they have on the distribution side is through sort of online capabilities. We think about, you know, what, as I said, you know, what are proprietary components of the business, proprietary technology, distribution strategy, ingredients, supply chain, manufacturing practices, something that makes it unique and not replicatable so quickly and so easily. Um, there is a lot of competition, you know, particularly in the natural product space right now. Yeah, and it's interesting. And it's, as you know, it's just so easy to talk about Tarot because he's the company, he's you know, so impressive. And I think about that, and he mentioned a lot of things that, that make them different. First off, uh, you mentioned digital strategy, and they're incredibly good in that and, and the education part, but also really being experts on their craft. You know, someone could try to copy them and and sell these these extract these lines mains and and cordyceps extracts etc cetera, etc cetera. but for sigmatic adds adds so much more so I, I i would say that knowing some of your brands and looking at them i think they they all they all fit the part uh, appreciated and uh jordan for you know listeners that have a company that may be interested in, in getting investment how could they reach out to you uh they should reach out to info at excelfoods.com and um, just pass along any information they're comfortable sharing. But we love to learn about new products and great teams that are coming into the space. Um, so definitely, please reach out. Gotcha. And just to go a little bit granular, you know, if someone's going to send that email, you said like information they're comfortable sharing. What are like the the things you'd be looking for in that that first email? Uh, it's always helpful if you have uh, fundraising materials to share with them, at least, or a public format that you're comfortable sharing. We very quickly want to try the products. You know, we are in the food space, and it has to taste good. You know, and, and I think that it's always helpful when you're sending those solicitations out, whether it be us or another investor, to kind of explain why you guys are different um, and articulate, you know, sort of what's special about your offering or the plan that you've built. Got it. All right. Well, hey, Jordan, thanks so much uh, for coming on and, and sharing your insights on the food industry. Thanks so much for having me. Still here? Have you ever considered coaching? Let me explain. So 
Running my own food business and the podcast has given me a unique perspective on the industry. And as much as you can learn from the show, nothing beats personalized advice and consultation to your challenges as an entrepreneur and a food business owner. If you're interested in learning more, go to foodstartupspodcast.com slash coaching. Hey guys, thanks so much for listening. And as always, if you have any questions or comments, find us online at foodstartupspodcast.com.